This, uh, this shiur or lecture will be called The Challenge of Free Choice, coming from Parshat Vayera. And the idea that we're going to cover in this text is this perplexing uh, piece of work in which over and over we are reminded of the expression, the Lord stiffened Pharaoh's heart. And it just almost seems that uh, Pharaoh's free will had been, in essence, removed from him. The shiur that I will bring to you will have several different quotes to include some sections of, uh, of a commentary or a presentation written by Yonah Barmoaz uh, from uh, Hebrew University. This article proposes, and this idea, and this shiur proposes um, to provide us different answer by closely examining the progression of events. And we'll examine this because we know that we have free will. Clearly, we know we have free choice. But how is it that Hashem hardens Pharaoh's heart? Does he not now remove Pharaoh's free will? Is there a time in every individual's life in which God decides, I remove your freedom of choice and you have to do what I tell you to do? Well, clearly that is not the case. Because Hashem did not create us to be robots or angels. If He wanted angels, He would have made us angels. And we could have been able to do all the commandments of Hashem without one, one problem of rejecting it. Our problem with doing everything that God asks us to do is we have a yetzaharar that's constantly embattled against our desires and what we you know what we really want versus what God wants. It's it's a very difficult thing. <clears throat> this freedom of choice rather uh, is explained this way. He encourages encourages human beings to continue acting and thinking as they have always acted through. Uh, through. It is it is this array, encouragement that does not subvert free choice which the Parsha calls stiffening the heart. Our approach that we're going to take today follows an idea that is presented in the Gemara in Tractate Makot 10b. Now, it says that Rabbah, son of Rav Huna, quoted Rav Huna, and others said that Rav Huna quoted Rabbi Eliezer as saying, We know from the Torah, the prophets, and the writings that in the path a person wishes to walk there." He is led from the Torah, from the text. Do not go with them. Numbers twenty-two twelve, and another number Numbers twenty-two twenty. It says, "You may go with them." From the prophets, uh, from the text, he says, "I am the Lord your God, guiding you in the way you should go." Isaiah forty-eight seventeen, and from the writings and from the text. At scoffers, he scoffs, but to the lowly, he shows grace, according to Proverbs 3.34. The example given from the Torah comes from the story of Balaam, where God consents for Balaam to go to Balak's dignitaries, or with his dignitaries. It is a freedom of action which the Lord provided that he leads, which would lead him into more trouble. It seems that Balaam is, is, is at one point asking the favor of God to go. 
And then when he starts to go, God puts obstacles in his way in which in ways in which he subverts. And even after he makes the choice, the free choice to go curse Israel, he couldn't do it when he got there. So even with all of that, he could not attempt to subvert the purpose of God when it comes to protecting Israel. Now, in the case of Pharaoh, as well as it would be easy to persuade him to listen to the voice of God, if God had immediately shown his mighty hand, which the term comes several times, the mighty hand of God. We know that God doesn't have a hand. So what are we talking about? The overwhelming, um, miraculous presentation of the power and the might of the Creator. That's what it means. Instead, we're going to count 12 separate methods which are employed to enable Pharaoh to continue on his own way. Sandy had a great explanation before class. She gave the illustration that uh, you go to a doctor, you, he says, you have this condition, take this medication. Um, I get home, I think I'm better. And you have this a lot of time with people with psychiatric disorders. They'll, they'll take the medication, they feel better, but then yet they, it starts making them feel normal again, which for them, they don't feel normal, and so they get off the medication. I don't know if you've heard of that or not, but it's quite, quite often the case. Well, their, their free choice interrupts what the doctor is going to tell them, how, how they could heal themselves. And yet they choose not to do it, therefore reverting back to another place. You are going to do what you want to do. We've said this many times. A person does what he loves. A person does what he loves. So if we're struggling to live a righteous life, if we're struggling to do mitzvah, it's because that's not really what you want to do. And Hashem will allow you to do what you want to do. Now, we're going to look at each one of these 12 steps. I find them quite fascinating. That God gives you free will, but at the same time, He will allow you to do what you desire to do. So the desires of the heart, you're going to do those things. That's why it's important for us, uh, for hit but I do, personal prayer. It's a powerful connection in which we realign ourselves to the Creator. Prayer is not designed for us to go change the mind of God. Prayer is about changing our mind and conforming our mind to the way God thinks. So therefore, we should be able to receive the subtle, subtle impulses from the Creator, the subtle nudges to make the right decisions because of personal prayer. Personal prayer is a very powerful tool in which the slightest little nuance in your situation, you'll go, the wisdom of God would be to do this or to do that. But when you don't and when you're not fine-tuned to it, the very uh, overwhelming suggestion from the hand of God will completely be ignored or not even noticed. You won't even notice. Us men have to deal with the condition called... called um, we're men. My wife and I often will say, and I'm sure you wives will probably say the same to your husbands, I hope, that, uh, what were you thinking? Right? What were you thinking? And you were going, I wasn't thinking. <laughs> right? Why? Because it's just, the, it's not as obvious to us men as it is to you. And the reason why you guys, uh, the ladies, have an incredible ability to multitask things in your mind and see things at every angle of a prism. 
where we see one color of light, you see ten. Right? And so that's why you wonder, what were you thinking? And you go, I wasn't thinking. That's why I did what I did. If I was thinking, I wouldn't have done it. And I tell my wife, I said, that's why God gave me to, uh, gave you to me so that you could be the part of my brain that is not. Right? It helps. So with Pharaoh, Pharaoh, he had plenty of opportunity to repent. And this was the key word that Sandy said to me, which, which is something I want to repeat. Is that Hashem wanted Pharaoh to repent with a proper repentance. He wanted him to do tshuva properly. And what do we mean by that? Saying uncle when your arm is getting ready to get lifted off of your shoulder is not an apology. Whenever you get down and you're at your worst case scenario and you say, I'm sorry, I repent, I changed my mind. If it's not genuine, what are you going to do? Revert back to what you were. And it's actually, uh, you're lying to the very creator of the universe. And why would Hashem want to put you in a situation in which you would lie to him and then revert back? He wanted repentance to be pure. So let's look at these 12 things. First, from the onset, the request to leave Egypt was made in such a way as to imply weakness. Moses' words are uh, a request for permission to worship God. You remember the beginning of the text, he says, Pharaoh, please let my people go out into the desert so we can worship God. Not a demand uh, for total emancipation of the slaves. Clearly, Moses did not uh, demand compensation for the suffering and the loss that the Israelite people had Uh, So undeservingly received. The request itself puts Pharaoh in a position of approving the exodus for the Israelites or preventing it. Moses' petition is presented as if he were heading uh, sort of a diplomatic delegation. Was given Pharaoh the opportunity with the kindest of approach, nothing demanding, that Pharaoh could have used his good common sense and goodwill to say, Go do what you have to do. But Moses, very intentionally, and if you'll notice these requests as it goes along, is very much like a nation, how a nation negotiates prior to going to war. There is this sort of gentle negotiation to say, why don't we make these parameters, um, the conditions of surrender, etc. And it's all done through diplomatic channels with all political correctness. But by each level, you see there is an increased intensity to what God is going to do to Pharaoh. All the time hoping that Pharaoh repents at the lowest level. You see, Hashem's design for all of mankind is that we would, we would come to repentance at our free choice. Not because we felt like we had to. That's the important thing. That's why it's so beautiful that each one of us, as we go to bed at night and go to sleep, that we ask Hashem to Uh, to help us to release things that we have not repented of and examine things that should be examined before Him. Why? Because we're at the very lowest level. We're doing it before we go to sleep. There's no threat, no problems. We're doing it at ease. Number three, Moses gives a general declaration regarding the overall divine plan. Without detailing before Pharaoh the full range of means that will be carried out on him and the nation. Consequently, Pharaoh cannot know whether or uh, later whether indeed God carried out all of his threats. 
even when the primary means that God, and this is number four, even when the primary means that God will use to implement his plan are mentioned, it sounds like an empty threat. Simply using boastful language due to imagery employed. Here's the example. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. I have said to you, let my son go that, that they may worship me. Yet you refuse to let them go. So what does God do? God takes Pharaoh's firstborn. He says, as I consider the children of Israel, my firstborn. So you consider the firstborn of Egypt, your firstborn. I will destroy them. That's a powerful thing. Now, why does God use such strong language? And why does he actually carry this out in the very end? Is to forbid Israel to serve God is tantamount to destroying them. A Jewish soul that cannot do mitzvah is a Jewish soul that will die. Even the creator of the universe reminds us to the prophet that all souls belong to him and a soul that does not repent will surely die. What does that mean? Does it mean he's going to drop dead on the floor of a cardiac arrest? No. It means that that person lacks life. What is life? Life is Torah. What is life? Life is mitzvah. If I can't do those things, what good, what good am I in this earth? As, as soon as I realize that, then that is why it pushes us so much to do these mitzvahs. Um, the, um, number five, in the first encounter between God's representative and the Pharaoh, a trivial sign is given which neither reflects nor represents accurately the, four, the full force standing behind Moses and Aaron. So trivial that the, the Egyptian magicians and representatives of the supernatural powers were able to actually imitate the act. Number six, the lack of divine response to the deterioration in, con in the condition of the slaves first, after the first meeting, actually conveys a message of weakness as if proving to Pharaoh that the threat made in the first contact with him was an empty one. Why in the world is Hashem allowing the situation to be almost empty threats? Because it was a process of causing Pharaoh to change his mind without the force. God does not want to force you to do something. He doesn't want to put you in a situation where you don't have a choice. Because if, it, if you are put in a situation where you feel like you have no choice, then really have you repented. The third and sixth and ninth of the ten plagues came without any advance warning from Moses. Leaving the way open to conclude that the plagues had not been brought on through the meditation of Moshe. We're raising it up a notch. But Pharaoh and them, according to the, uh, to the, um, or the mag magicians, they say... It could have happened naturally. It could have been just a natural occurrence. But the magician says, this is the finger of God, Exodus 8.15. It could be taken lightly to say, well, maybe it's just natural coincidences this took place. Maybe it wasn't the hand of God. Well, God ignores the instance in which Pharaoh breaks his promise. Because we know that in the middle of this, he says, okay, I, I'm done. This is it. I'll commit to it. I'll let your people go. And then he breaks the promise. Providing... 
proving to him that the threat of punishment was not real. Now, why does this, why is it important that Pharaoh feels like, well, there's no consequences. I just backed out of the deal. Why? Because once again, he's wanting Pharaoh to repent and do tshuva. This disregard is especially significant in the first instance after the plague of the frogs when Pharaoh was removed, uh, when the plague was removed in exchange for Pharaoh's promise to release the Israelites, when Pharaoh disregarded his promise, God does not call this to his attention. Rather, he instructs Moses to bring on the next plague against Egypt. The Torah does not draw any connection between the new plague and the plague that just took place. They weren't plagues getting worse because of not following through with the commitment to let the people go. Each individual plague had to do specifically, and we know this from the sages of blessed memory, it has everything to do with the particular deity worship, right? So every time that Pharaoh refused, then God would demonstrate, this is how your deity cannot help you, right? One step at a time, breaking down your idols. In some ways, that is what tshuva is all about, is about the destruction of the idols in our life. It is about destroying the things that we idolize the most, and we allow them to become small demagogues in our life. Materialism can become like an idol. Uh, things within the material world can become like an idol. A relationship can be like an idol. And sometimes Hashem will help you to see how fickle your idol, idolatrous lifestyle has become by removing your financial security or by not allowing a relationship to work out as you would surely hope that it would work out. He wants to do these things to cause you to do tshuva. Now, the first nine plagues are rather limited in nature and could easily be interpreted as natural phenomenon that occurred in Egypt from time to time, albeit not as such a high frequency, of course, and at such a short period of time, which these plagues lasted over about a year period of time. The temporary nature of each plague and the role played by units of time measured in, in threes and sevens familiar with magical rites can lead one to think that these were magicians' tricks or alternatively a natural chain of events. Simply God is wanting, is demonstrating his great hand, but he's doing it with a soft gesture to say, Pharaoh, just get this done. The appearance of the plagues are clearly cyclic, divided in three series, each paralleling in each manner in which they come. The first is announced to Pharaoh early in the morning at the water's edge, the second announced in the palace, and the third comes unannounced. The cyclic characteristic creates a short natural rhythm, as if a law of nature were operating here. The plague's escalation in force is not necessarily accomplished by greater blows on human beings, and therefore it is not troublesome, didn't bother them. It was frogs, it was fleas, it was pestilence, but it didn't bother them. True, each series concluded with a plague that involved injury to human beings, but the next in the series only affects the, uh, the, um, the, the inanimate or the plant world, causing the threat on human beings to be forgotten as soon as the plague was over with. As soon as the plants started growing, as soon as the lice went away, life got comfortable again, they were not so pressured to do anything. Therefore, Pharaoh really had no reason to fear his own life and others. 
That's why his mind, were cha- his mind was changed quite frequently. The, the way the plagues were handled enabled Pharaoh to adhere to his own misconceptions. I.e., uh, it's just a natural event. It wasn't Moses at all. I mean, surely, if our magicians could do this, this is not the hand of God. God allowed Pharaoh to think exactly what he wanted to think. And this is why it's important for us, that as we live our life, that we don't become delusional in our thinking. Thinking, ah, this couldn't have been God speaking to me. We should automatically assume that everything that happens to us in our life is somehow Hashem trying to teach us something. On the other hand, Pharaoh had, was at such a low place that he couldn't even see the obvious in front of him. Couldn't see it. I've repeated this many times. I'll repeat it again. It's from the Ramchal, the path of the just, when he says that a person who is willfully ignorant is like a blind man in the dark. Not even a sighted individual can help a blind man in the dark. Pharaoh, in this condition, is being handed the very, uh, the, the, the very gentlest of nudges by the creator of the universe to say, this must be God. But he was so delusional in his own deity worship, meaning that uh, Pharaohs in Egypt considered themselves to be what? They considered themselves to be God. It's like, how could this be God? There is no other God but me. Correct? Which is actually the problem with anybody who refuses to repent. They actually think that they are their own God. There's an interpretation that arises, uh, raises the opposite question. How will Pharaoh ever come to realize the hand of God is at work if God hides his might and enables Pharaoh to delude himself into thinking that he is dealing with hollow demands? Any good common sense individual to include some of the magicians figured it out before Pharaoh did saying this is by the hand of God in response we can point out that at least five things that could have opened his eyes and Pharaoh simply allowed himself to consider them more closely could have easily seen it for example the supernatural uh, rate of increase of the Israelite people and how in the face of of all of the demands to destroy the firstborn, they grew even greater. They become like a great swarm. He couldn't hold back the birth rate. Somewhere in that very simple nudge, even before all this happened, he could have said, these people are a mighty great people. How about this? Number three, requesting that the entire nation of slaves be freed is itself a bold enough challenge. Who in their right mind would show up to the Pharaoh and say, let my people go? Who in their right mind? The courageousness of Moses and Aaron should also have led Pharaoh to think, how could two people be prepared to take on a superpower when they have no visible means of a military or armaments? How could they possibly, either they're crazy or there's something very special about them? And number five, the precision which Moses and Aaron uh, threats are carried out and the reliability of the word also demands attention. Pharaoh could not see that exactly what Moses and Aaron said and did happened. Yet, if our approach is correct, the question remains why the scripture repeatedly states that God stiffened Pharaoh's heart. Maimonides' guide for the perplexed offers an answer that, that's according to this theory that we're trying to lay forward. It is perfectly clear that no new thing can exist without having an approximate cause. 
And that cause, in turn, has has its cause, and so on and so forth. Until one arrives at the original cause of everything, that is to say, the will of God and His choice. Hence, sometimes the words of the prophets omit all of the intermediate causes and the relationship of human involvement involved action is in respect of the creator and simply say that the almighty performed the action so it says in our context the importance of Maimonides' statement is that as is that the stiffening of pharaoh's heart even if it happened indirectly involves the decision taken by pharaoh not by god pharaoh's heart was stiffened because of what pharaoh so what what the text probably should have said is that God allowed Pharaoh's heart to be hardened. Because it almost seems as if he hardened his heart, but merely he gave Pharaoh his wish. This message was important to convey, especially for the account of Exodus from Egypt. For it has expressed the idea that the history of the Jewish people is special and is directed by God. Drawing a direct relationship between Pharaoh and the hand of God. That Pharaoh also, uh, God also deals with the nations in such a way as to cause them to, to do tshuva. And if they would merely see the signs around them, they could have done tshuva. That's a practical application for the conclusion of the text. And if you want uh, references, I have, uh, I have the um, um, footnotes here for references. Um, the simple idea is our life is a, uh, the Rabbi Nachman of Brislov says that life is like a narrow bridge, right? It's, it's a very carefully navigated journey. And every step has to be made with precision. And we know that the steps of a righteous person is ordered by the creator of the universe. At the same time, he does not force your steps. He merely assists you and where you're going. If you are righteous, then your steps will lead you to righteousness. If you're not righteous, your steps will lead you to sin. And it's a very simple thing. And therefore, we do have a challenge when it comes to free choice. What is the challenge? The challenge is not necessarily making the choice, to be honest with you. The challenge is hearing the voice of God and seeing the gentle hints, maybe the waypoints, the markers in the road, the prints in the sand, whatever it may be, hearing the gentle nudge of the creator of the universe is the challenge of free choice. Because much of our negative choices come not because we have made sound choices. It comes because we've made impulsive choices. And by Hashem's loving kindness, may we be able to hear his voice, recognize his voice in the gentle things that happen around us and make the right decisions. That concludes this year, this lecture. If you have questions or comments, now would be the time to do so.